All right, welcome folks. We're about to start the book launch with Dr. Guy Burton on his new book, China and the Middle East. You're tuning in to the latest webinar from the Council for British Research in the Levant, broadcasting from our Jerusalem Center at the Kenyan Institute. Uh, this event is co-sponsored by our friends at the Educational Bookshop in East Jerusalem. And we are broadcasting from here in Jerusalem. And Dr. Guy Burton is in Brussels. The Council for British Research in the Levant is uh, an independent UK research charity and membership organization that exists to conduct and support uh, research in the humanities and social sciences across the Levant. Uh, we're one of eight different British Academy sponsored international research institutes, which help us sustain our activity through a generous uh, core grant, which we also need to fundraise around. And that's why we have our members and friends who sponsor us different forms of donations. We have over a hundred years of history in the region and have uh, regional branches in Jerusalem, as well as Amman and our headquarters in London. Today we have upwards of over a hundred people who have signed up for this event today, which is a great sounding topic, which I'm sure many people are very interested in hearing much about because it's got a lot, we hear a lot about it in the press and actually separating fact from fiction is not so clear. What is hoopla, what is propaganda, what is real? Well, today to clarify some of these uh, topics of the extent of China's influence in the Middle East and as well as its history is uh, a Dr. Guy Burton, uh, uh, upcoming researcher who has quite a prolific CV here, quite a globetrotter he is. Guy Burton is an adjunct professor at Vesalius College in Brussels and is, the fellow, is a fellow on the Sectarianism, Proxies and Desectarianization Project at Lancaster University. He has previously held research and teaching posts at Mohammed bin Rashid School of Government in Dubai, Nottingham University's Malaysia campus, the University of Kurdistan Hewler in Iraq, and Bir Zayt University in the West Bank. His research interests include the role of rising powers in the politics of international relations in the Middle East. And he has two fantastic titles uh, that, have come out, uh, that have come out on China and the Middle East conflicts which is what we'll be discussing today, which came out from Routledge Press in 2020. In fact, it just came out a week ago. And Rising Powers in the Arab-Israeli Conflict Since 1947, which came out from Lexington Books in 2018. Thank you very much, Dr. Burton, for your uh, willingness to come on today. Yes, th thank you for having me, Topic. I appreciate it. Yes, I'm in Brussels at the moment on a beautiful sunny day. Um, but thank you so much for, for you know, inviting me and letting me participate and sort of actually you know, use the use the Kenyan Institute and CBRL to to launch my book. I really appreciate it, and I mean it's wonderful to sort of have this kind of connection again. With you know, given that I did spend you know a number of years you know at Beer Zayt and also some time in Jerusalem, and I have fond memories of the Kenyan Institute with its beautiful view across uh, you know the the east of the city, you know down to the old city, and also I have fond memories of the Education Bookshop as well. And so you know always found it a worthwhile time when I was in Jerusalem to spend a bit of time there. And it's still an ambition of mine, actually, to have, you know, my book there. And so, <laughs> you know, it would be great, um, you know, if it is carried there. I recognize, of course, that these, these are academic books, so the cost is usually pretty expensive. 
But you, you, you did mention my previous book, which is on rising powers, specifically the BRICS and uh, the Arab-Israeli conflict. Uh, that is going to become a paperback uh, from September or October. So it's a much more, you know, it will be at a much more reasonable price for individual uh, purchases. So I, I do hope that it will be carried there. And actually some of that work uh, that I did for that book is kind of influenced what I'm doing, what I've done with this current book, which looks at China and conflict in the Middle East more generally. And so I have, you know, I've sort of, I, I recognize that we're going to be talking, for, we've got about an hour or so, but I, I'm conscious of the fact that people probably want, you know, to get into sort of the detail of, of the book and of the specific cases. Um, and so I wanted to really just spend about 20 minutes just sort of laying out, you know, why I think this book is needed, you know, the, the key points of it, which is actually quite challenging given that we're talking about a quite wide region and a quite a wide historical period. And, uh, and then from there, you know, sort of just flag up, I guess, some sort of key points for thinking about China and the Middle East, you know, as a, as a player and as an actor. So, you know, as I mentioned, in terms of sort of thinking about this book, um, the book was sort of a development of the, of the previous work that I had done, which had been primarily looking at the Arab-Israeli conflict and the role of the BRICS, and, and of which, you know, China seems to be, you know, stand out, obviously, you know, as, as sort of the second largest economy in the world, you know, increasingly becoming more important in the Middle East. Um, so there has been, you know, obviously, China itself has been undergoing a bit of a shift in the last decade as well. It has shifted from, you know, leadership to the presidency of Xi Jinping uh, in 2012. And there is a general consensus with amongst China watchers that this is a much more assertive, um, you know, China. Uh, whereas in part, in, at least since the 1970s, there was this tendency of the Chinese foreign policy to sort of be a bit standoffish, to not be confrontational. Today, it is becoming much more present um, as a commercial actor, and if, as certainly as you alluded to in your, in your, in your initial comments, uh, Taufik, you know, there is much more attention happening in the media, and especially on the case from, from the perspective of the Americans, as to sort of China as a potential threat and challenge. And this sort of goes against, you know, a lot of what China's been trying to do for the last, you know, 20, 30 years. You know, it's been sort of emphasizing that its, its rise, its global rise can be peaceful, and that it's not seeking confrontation with the, with, with the preponderant power, both globally and in the region, which is the United States. Of course, that is now sort of being reinterpreted, reinterpreted and reimagined by, by the Americans, you know, in the context of sort of their confrontation when it comes to sort of the global, you know, to the, to global trade, but also what's happening more specifically in the Middle East, um, you know, sort of with, with uh, in the last month, this so-called deal between uh, Iran and China. Um, just to sort of disabuse you of a couple of things, you know, this isn't the first time that this, these reports have come out about, you know, China supposedly investing $400 billion in over 25 years in Iran. These, these reports came out in about September last year as well. Um, so it is actually kind of a, a bit of a trope that we, that we see. Sort of China is a bit of the bogeyman, as it were. Now, um, obviously, there's a lot of attention, as I said, about China as, 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 a, as a player in the Middle East. Um, what a lot of the attention has been, at least sort of, you know, for China watchers over the last five, six years, has been primarily as an economic actor. Um, and I think Belt and Road Initiative, you know, which captured a lot of people's imagination, you know, when it, in, upon, upon its launch in 2013, you know, was part of that. This is a massive connectivity project that the Chinese have been talking about, you know, through using Chinese capital and investments in physical infrastructure and telecommunications across Central Asia, of which 
you know, to, you know, to the West, of which the Middle East constitutes a part. So there has been interest in terms of sort of China and the Middle East about Belt and Road. But I wanted to sort of take a little bit of a, a shift because, you know, the rhetoric and the language that is used about Belt and Road is that it is of mutual benefits to both sides. You know, the Chinese on the one side and its Arab, Iranian, Turkish uh, and Israeli partners on the other, that this is what they call, quote, win-win. Um, for me, I find, you know, when we look at the Middle East, though, it's a much more problematic region. There are a number of conflicts. There are hot wars. Uh, in the cases of Syria and Yemen and Libya, um, you know there are rivalries between Saudi Arabia and Iran, um, you know which are sort of at the at the regional level, but also play themselves out, you know, across the region, you know, within countries. We see this taking place in Yemen. We see this taking place in Syria. You know, we currently see this in 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 Libya in the Libyan conflict with the Turks, you know, sort of backing the GNA on one side and the UAE and the Egyptians backing Haftar's forces on the other. So what you have is the you know a myriad of different rivalries. Some of these are, you know, sort of violent, some of these are more cold, some of these are proxy. Um, and so where does China sort of situate itself in the middle of all of this? And so this is where sort of the, you know, the motivation came for, from this book, for this book. Uh, at the same time as well, you know, I was keen to uh, pull the, you know, if, as it were, pull the camera back a bit. Because one of the things that we've tended to find about looking at China and the Middle East is this sort of focus on, you know, the recent, what has happened in the last six, seven, eight years since Belt and Road. Um, and as a result, if we do that, we lose perspective. And I think actually, if you pull the, pull the lens back and look at China, you know, as a historical actor in the Middle East, what you actually find is that it has never gone away. It's actually been a very physical, it's been a very, there's been a very tangible presence you know, in the lives and, and activities of, of, mid, of the Middle East, you know, certainly since the mid-1950s when it made its first contacts with the region. Now, that is a relationship that has fluctuated back and forth. It has become deeper and more robust over time um, compared to previously when it was maybe much more rhetorical. Uh, but certainly, I think, you know, you, if in looking at it over this period of 70 years or so, what you find is that the Chinese, you know, has shifted, you know, over time and in relation to what's going on, not just within the region, but also what's happening outside. And so this is the, so this, this historical perspective is, I think, something I think is that adds a bit of value to, to, to the book as well. Um, now, in terms of sort of thinking about sort of, you know, China as this historical actor in relation to conflict in the Middle East, you know, I'm just going to summarize very briefly that there are three main types, three main roles that they have taken, you know, during that time. Um, and these, these, three, I, these three types, you know, can, are taken, taken from international rate relations theory. Uh, but broadly, it's kind of summarized as, you know, you can be, as a rising power, you can take the role of a supporter of the system. So you support and accept the status quo. You want to work with it. You don't want to challenge it. Uh, the alternative, the flip side to that, is to act as a spoiler, to be a to, to reject the system, to challenge it, want to see an alternative. And certainly, if we think about you know China in the in the in the global realm, uh, certainly this idea of sort of China as a, as a challenger, as a spoiler, has been sort of portrayed for the last over the last twenty years, and has also been associated with with groups like the BRICS. So you have, so I guess, at one end, you know, the idea of supporter, a supporter of the system, at the other end, a spoiler of the system. But you also have, actually, the idea of being a shirker, of just negating, um, to shirk, to, to pull away from the system, to stand apart from it, to not become involved as either a supporter or to not challenge it. 
So those three roles, actually, we see China take, you know, doing you know, over the course of the, of the 70 years that it has been present in the Middle East. But what also influences it considerably is not actually so much the conflicts themselves. What happens is that China is primarily a respondent to conflicts taking place in the Middle East. How it chooses to act is primarily influenced by what's happening outside the Middle East and by its relationships with, with, the, with the global powers, with the superpowers during the Cold War, and then subsequently after the end of the Cold War with the, you know, US, the American position as the hegemonic power. In the Cold War, of course, we also find, you know, there is that Sino-Soviet rivalry which starts to take place after the death of Stalin, in which China is competing, you know, with the Soviet Union to become, you know, the preeminent communist power. And so for that reason, you find the Chinese, you know, trying to find ways into, into the Middle East where it can sort of, you know, seek an opportunistic uh, approach that uh, advantages it and disadvantages the, the, the disadvantages Moscow. So let me just sort of run very sort of swiftly through, um, you know, sort of, I mean, what I'm, what I'm going to share with you right now is, um, you know, my sort of the, the, the slide at the end of the, end of the book, uh, in which I sort of try and sort of categorize all these different roles that the Chinese have played. Um, if I can just sort of share with you this, this, this sort of also ca this captures um, sort of you know China, the Chinese roles, but also China's approach to conflict uh, more generally. Um, so what we sort of see over the course of sort of you know from the 1950s until sort of the last decade is this shift from sort of China you know acting you know as a sort of supporter of conflict, so as a spoiler of conflict in the 1950s and 1960s, towards an increasing you know support for the system. Um, and to some extent, sh are shirking from it. Now, what do I mean by this? So, when China first—sorry, can I just check, Taufi? Um, is the is the is the is my is my screen up? Is see, it I see it loud and clear. Yeah. Brilliant. Okay. So thanks. So what I so what you find is that China initially makes its first points of contact, you know, in the 1950s, you know, in in the spirit of Bandung, you know, sort of the the sort of the, the non-aligned movements of the developing countries. And its first point of contact is primarily with national liberation uh, movements like that in Algeria uh, during their war of independence against France, as well as, as well as with Gamal Nasser in Egypt. And you find, the, find that sort of during the 1950s and the 1960s, you know, China is a very strident supporter of, of these regimes and of these movements, which are challenging you know, the Middle East, because at the time, you know, many of the regimes that exist in the Middle East are quite conservative, anti-communist, anti very suspicious of what's going on in Beijing. Beijing does not have a lot of diplomatic ties to the region, and it also faces being a junior partner to the Soviet Union in, in this. It's also because um, the Soviet Union is the greater power that uh, China finds it difficult to find ways of, you know, superseding it and so that's why it starts to reach out certainly in the 1960s towards more you know revolutionary groups um organizations that are that pursue national liberation like the plo um like the eritreans like the eritrean liberation front in eritrea uh the defaris who are who are sort of struggling for you know for you know secession in um in, in the gulf so what you find in the 1960s is that the Chinese are supporting, and they're not just supporting, they're actually providing military assistance to these, uh, to these groups. Of course, it is not significant amounts of military assistance 
to the same degree that they were acquiring from elsewhere. But what you find is that they're providing small arms, they're providing training, they're providing um, you know, training both within China as well as sort of within the region. Um, in that course, you know, the Chinese you know, use these groups as a kind of a, a spoiler, as a challenger to sort of you know, the Soviet Union and the United States. Um, but from the 1970s, from the early part of the 1970s, we start to see a shift. And there's a reason for that change. Uh, domestically in China, uh, the you know, sort of commitment to ideological, ideological political change and revolution is coming to an end with the end of the Cultural Revolution uh, the and the, and the sub subsequent uh, decline and demise of Mao Zedong. And after a, a number of years, uh, a rise to the leadership of Deng Xiaoping, who takes a much more pragmatic, business-oriented approach to, uh, you know, to, to China's foreign policy. It's an approach in which China uh, prioritizes economic development at home and uses foreign policy as a means to, to do that and uh, downplays kind of political uh, commitments, downplays sort of commitments to revolution from the past. You also see in this decade, you know, China trying to uh, reach out to make diplomatic connections and ties with countries in the region. Um, and so over the course of the 1970s and 1980s, China establishes diplomatic relations with most, most of these countries, uh, resulting in the final one with an Arab country being Saudi Arabia in 1990 and with Israel in 1992. Um, in the course of the, you know, these sort of 1970s and 1980s, you know, China is prioritizing you know, business, commerce and profit. Um, and so you see sort of their sort of entry point into this being the arms trade. So they're providing arms, you know, to both to both sides of the Iran-Iraq war, um, and yet presenting themselves as, you know, sort of uh, supporters and of, of identifying with them as members of the developing world um, during the during that decade. You also find them starting starting the clandestine uh, relationship with Israel, which is also based on an arms trade. In this instance, it's actually um, Israel selling arms to China. Now, what had happened there was that China had uh, you know, had its um, a lot of its military equipment, you know, trashed or destroyed during its war with Vietnam in the in the late 1970s. A lot of that was Soviet built, and they did not have access to, or they did not want to go to Moscow, you know, for 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 its uh, for, for to to renew it. So instead, what they found was that Israel had taken a lot of you know Soviet-built equipment off the battlefields in 1967 and in the 1973 wars, and so they were willing to sell it to to the Chinese. And this is the start at which the Chinese and and the Israelis actually engage with each other, leading subsequently and eventually to a diplomatic relationship. You know, from the early 1990s. Now, the 19 like as I said, sort of the 1970s and 1980s is primarily an economic relationship. Um, within, you know, within the context of the Cold War. With the end of the Cold War, obviously the Americans become preponderant in the region. And it is underneath that American umbrella, as it were, that the Chinese, you know, shift from being, you know, shift to becoming a major net importer. So the Gulf becomes increasingly important to them as a supplier of both oil and gas. But I also should hate to stress at this point that you know over the last twenty to thirty years, that relationship that China has with the Gulf with the Gulf states has moved. So it is not just about oil and gas anymore. It is also about you know broader investment, and it's now two way, and it includes things like you know investment in real estate, health, uh, healthcare, and and and, and other sectors. 
Um, so it is quite a you know, substantial uh, relationship there. Now, this is all happening, obviously, with sort of China on, on, and it, as it sort of rises up, uh, sort of the, the, the it become, becomes more of a global economic power during the 2000s. But it also manages to do this without direct confrontation with the United States. Um, certainly, you find the, the, the Chinese, when it comes to war, you know, being, uh, being wary of it. So, during the, so when in 1990, uh, Iraq invades Kuwait, it, is not, it does not support that, but neither does it see war as the solution. And, in, and certainly until the, the final point, until as, as, as very late in the day, it was still appealing for dialogue to happen rather than sort of, you know, rather than uh, the U there being a UN uh, resolution for, for war. This also continues into 2003. Uh, the Chinese were very averse to uh, conflict taking place there, but unlike the Russians and the French who had threatened to use their veto um, at the UN Security Council, the Chinese avoided that. What is interesting is that, you know, in the wake of the 2003 uh, invasion and war, um, the Americans obviously, you know, bore the brunt and bore the costs of the military occupation. The Chinese did incredibly well with building up economic ties, with developing commercial relations and getting contracts in the energy sector in Iraq. Iraq. So you actually see there quite interesting symbiosis between the Americans and the Chinese to the point where, you know, the Americans get got quite frustrated with this. And so one of President Obama's parting shots back in about 2014-2015 was that the Chinese had basically pre-rided on, 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 on America's you know, security presence in the region. Um, the Arab uprising I think is incredibly interesting because I think, and this is maybe something which we will probably go into in terms of talking, of talking about the, uh, the, in the Q&A, but the Arab uprising was sort of met with, with a great, great degree of suspicion and fear by, the, by, by China for fear that it would influence and inspire you know, similar protest movements at home. When that became clear it wasn't going to happen, it then became concerned that you know, stability and order remained the, remained the, 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 the name of the, the key of the day uh, in the region. It did not want to see its own commercial interests you know, sort of uh, disadvantaged as a result of, of the uprisings. And so it was also, in the case of Libya, you know, averse to the fact that you know, a number of countries you know, have, although China abstained on the key vote, Resolution 1973, which authorized a no-fly zone over Libya, which NATO then used to, to enforce. Both the Russians and the Chinese felt quite averse to that. And so when you know, the, the uprisings moved to Syria, um, the Chinese were very wary about sort of allowing any kind of foreign intervention. Although, as you then, as I point out in my book, there is a distinction made between you know, intervention that comes from you know, the West versus inter regional intervention. Because what you see is that, you know, certainly in places like Libya, Syria, and Yemen, where China does not have very significant commercial interests, neither is it pushing for these regional parties like Saudi Arabia in, in Yemen to pull out, neither is it demanding that Iran in Syria pull out. It, basically lean, even though it's, it talks about neutrality, it talks about uh, political dialogue and, you know, talk being the answer to conflict, neither does it necessarily see, um, you know, the need to push its regional partners to, to remove themselves. Now, that kind of brings me, I guess, to sort of the final points that I want to make, which is about this idea of shirker and supporter that China has in the Middle East. 
And the, the position it, that it has, as I, as I flagged up with the Saudis and Yemen and the Iranians in Syria, points to, points to a fact that the Chinese are effectively hedging, right? The Chinese, uh, when it comes to the rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran, the direct confrontation that the two have, it does not get involved. But neither does it sort of want to step in to these wars where the Saudis and the, and the Iranians you know, have influence or have, you know, sort of have, have sunk costs. So this is what we call hedging. Basically, China trying to avoid taking too, you know, taking on too much responsibility while also looking to see some kind of uh, outcome which is going to be preferable to it. Um, there have been a couple of instances, though, where China has had to become more and more involved in, in, uh, in, 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 in conflict in the region. And I would say there are two specific ones which I talk about in the book. One is that there's an early case in Sudan, which happens in the wake of the Darfur crisis in 2003. And then more recently, um, that with Iran in, in the context of the Joint Comprehensive, Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, you know, in which uh, an arrangement, an agreement was, was fixed to, you know, for, for Iran to freeze its nuclear program you know, in exchange for sanctions being lifted against it. Now, in both of those cases, China's involvement in those conflicts and was for it to act as a mediator. And it saw its role as trying to balance on the one side countries, you know, the, the, the West in the, in the form of the United States and the other Western powers on the UN Security Council, and on the other side, you know, the governments in Iran and, and Sudan. And China felt that it could do this because it had the ears of these governments, because it had already made, you know, major economic investments in those countries. You know, in Sudan, for instance, Chinese commerce, Chinese commercial activity starts to grow substantially from the 1990s. So by 2003, when Darfur becomes, you know, a crisis and it gains international attention, whether the Chinese like it or not, they get brought into this mediation process. Similarly, the Chinese have al had already made investments in Iran you know, prior to 2012, prior to 2013, when the, when the talks started. It realized that if it did not get involved in these talks, that it could be left behind. Because if, if the West did manage to reach and agree a compromise a agreement with Iran, you know, that could actually sort of freeze the, you know, China out in terms of its investments. So there is sometimes a bit of a pull into, you know, for China to come into the region to become a mediator, but it's not necessarily always because of its own volition. Now, the final point I want to make is that in terms of the Belt and Road, I mean, one of the first things I said at the outset is that China has primarily been, you know, an actor outside looking in at conflict. So it's been able to choose the positions that it's wanted to take. What I think is interesting about Belt and Road is that this may actually be the start of, of a greater Chinese investment into the region. If and when that happens, that means China has less freedom of maneuver. It will become more and more tied to you know, the region. Um, to think about this, you know, China, Belt and Road projects are you know, funded and financed by Chinese capital um, and, and Chinese labor. Um, and countries are very keen to get hold of that, to attract that money. And that's going to be a lot harder going forward, especially in the wake of the coronavirus, because there will be less, you know, money available, much, much more finite resources from the Chinese side, and also more competition within the region for those resources. So what we may well see is that actually the Chinese, whether they like it or not, are going to become more of a cause of conflict in the Middle East, as opposed to over the last 70 years, an observer of conflict.
And I think with that, I'll stop because I'm sure that, you know, there's, there may well be questions that uh, people want to talk about specific cases rather than sort of the general trend of, of China's approach to the Middle East. So thank you. Well, thank you, Guy. That was fascinating, uh, especially what you ended on there insofar as you determination that uh, China may end up inevitably being more of a, a cause of conflict. And obviously, that's, those are very weighted words. Uh, it, taking you up on, on perhaps your last point there, I, I think I might just sort of, uh, insofar as we are located in Jerusalem here, we have obvious bias to hear what uh, your book, or perhaps your books actually say about China's role in Israel-Palestine conflict, basically. and. Uh, if you could shed some light on that, because uh, there hasn't been so much on it, although in recent times there has begun to be some uh, attention around the issue. I, I note here, for instance, an article by David Rosenberg from Haaretz uh, from July 13th. says, China is winning the Middle East and Trump is helping it. And uh, basically he says, he writes the following, he says, faced with the choice of US or China, Israel will have to go American but the calculations become more difficult if China is now the rising superpower in the Middle East. We're still far from that day, but it is approaching. Now, of course, Rosenberg is speaking more broadly about the Middle East, but perhaps you might be able to shed your light on uh, China's role with Israel-Palestine and the conflict per se, as well as uh, the larger extent of uh, uh, the supposed shift in power between US retreatism and China's ascendance. Thank yeah, you. so if I could just, yeah, if I just sort of start initially with the Middle East one. So, and there's one of the frustrating things that, that I've, I've kind of watched over the last few years is sometimes you get with this analysis, you have this talk about, you know, America wanting to, you know, retreat from the Middle East, wanting to pivot towards East Asia. So shifting sort of, you know, the focus from, from, from our part of the world that we're interested in to, you know, to, to East Asia and to containing China there. Um, I mean, that, so what, what's often sort of, you know, one of the concerns that sort of analysts have made, especially those in Washington, is to assume that, you know, if America withdraws, then China will automatically fill that space. And I'm not sure that that's actually the case, because, you know, as I sort of alluded to with the, you know, the Iraq example, sort of from, you know, post-2003, you know, there you had, you know, sort of the Chinese doing incredibly well in terms of commercial opportunities, in terms of investments, you know, but, un but that happened under the American security umbrella. There is no clear indication that the Chinese want to take that on, right? And certainly we saw this, you know, in, in the, if, you, if, you, if we cast our minds back to, to you know, 2014 and, you know, and, the, and the rise of ISIS and, it's when, and when it spilled over the border from Syria into Iraq, you know, ISIS became you know, a, a concern for the Chinese. Abu Baghdadi actually, you know, in his in his sermon in uh, in Mosul in, in June of 2014, actually cited the Chinese alongside the West as you know sort of you know persecuting and abusing you know the, our Muslim brothers. So the Chinese were sort of already on ISIS's radar, but the Chi and the Chinese and the Chinese you know recognized ISIS as, as a terrorist threat, and they were willing. And both on both the Syrian and the Iraqi sides, there was an in a keenness and an interest in getting the Chinese involved. The Chinese never got actively involved in, in terms of putting boots on the ground. Um, there may have been, you know, sort of backstage activity in terms of logistics and in terms of support, but if, if it was done, it was always on its own terms and never part of a, a wider international, you know, coalition. So 
that's so this so this idea that the Chinese are going to you know replace the United States I think is you know is a is a is a, is a, is a flawed flawed one. Now in terms of sort of you know Israel and Palestine, I mean one of the interesting things and, and I've been looking at this over the last six, you know five six years. You know one of the things people have sometimes asked is you know can China be a player in terms of sort of you know maybe even acting as an honest broker to you know to between the Israelis and the Palestinians in a way that the Americans haven't been. I mean, there's a problem with this, which is that, you know, since, you know, that the Chinese have, over the course of the last 70 years, have shifted from a very pro, very Arab, very, very supportive position for the Palestinians. In fact, they were supportive of the Palestinians during the 1960s, um, providing them with small arms, you know, providing, uh, you know, and providing diplomatic support for them. Um, but over the course of, you know, in the 1980s, that's, that, there was a bit of a, re, there's a somewhat of a realignment to the point where, you know, China now has diplomatic relations with both the Palestinians and the, and the Israelis. Its economic trade is worth vastly more with Israel than it is with the Palestinians. Um, and as far as, you know, the Chinese are concerned, you know, commercial relations, you know, Trump are more, more, far more important. Um, it has contracts, you know, to, to renovate and to manage that by Ashdod and Haifa ports. You know, it's you know there is major Chinese investment going into 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 high tech startups in Israel, uh, you know, which is incomparable to what's going on with the Palestinian economy. Um, from the early 1990s, China joined the international consensus in supporting the Oslo process. It consistently supports it. It consistently says, you know, that the, that the two sides should get back to the table and talk, even as you know we watch. You know, sort of the erosion of the two-state possibility existing. Um, you so you find so actually this is this is problematic because you know the Chinese are still supporting a, a model which is which is becoming uncompromised and under, undermined from within. Um, the other thing to think about, you know, just even three years. So I talked about you know she having a somewhat assertive foreign policy in 2013 as well as launching the Belt and Road. He also launched a four-point plan for the Israel-Palestine uh, conflict, and in that he doesn't really move. He didn't really move very far from what had already been sort of the guiding principles of, of China's position on the conflict. Um, and what's interesting is that having about a month after he launched the plan, you know, the John Kerry shuttle diplomacy, you know, trumped that, and the Chinese quite happily took a backstage toward that. Um, they revisited this in 2017 and said, you know. This, this is the revised four-point plan. It's not that much different to 2013. We would like to get both sides together. And actually, in December of 2017, this was overshadowed. You know, sort of. At, you may recall back in December 2017 uh, was when the Americans announced the, the move of the embassy to Jerusalem, right? Well, overshadowed. About a day later, the Chinese hosted um, a meeting of some Israeli peace activists led by Hilek Bar, you know, the, the, the speaker of the Knesset, along with a number of PLO, PLO members. So there was an attempt over two days to try and find, you know, at least, some, you know, some declaration, some statement that there are some people on both sides willing to talk. And um, what was interesting was it was really difficult for, you know, for them to actually get the two sides to agree, even a non-binding declaration. And you can imagine this is, you know, being done under the auspices of the Chinese in, in China. This is embarrassing, right? So there's, you can sort of see if they, if they'd struggled to get them to agree a non-binding resolution, which didn't, which hasn't really done much since. 
And so you then ask the question, well, if that's the case, why on earth would the Chinese invest any capital into, into, into trying to resolve the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians? So, you know, it's, as far as it's concerned, it has, it's done a very, I mean, I, I actually, you know, in the book, I, 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 allude, I refer to an Indian scholar, P.R. Kumaraswamy, who was also talking about India, um, in which he said, you know, the Indians, you know, have, were like the Chinese, they've been very pro-supportive pro, pro, pro of, of, uh, of the Palestinians, but over the course of the 80s and 90s, managed to establish a relationship with the, with the Israelis. And what Kumaraswamy said was, you know, the Chinese, or sorry, the Indians had effectively delinked relations between the Palestinians from the conflict, so that it could have diplomatic relations with both sides and the conflict on the other. The Chinese do exactly the same thing. And I think this is why it's actually quite a depressing thing to think about in terms of China as a possible actor in Israel-Palestine. I don't think it really is. Now, I'm sure at some point someone maybe wants to talk about BDS. I won't, I'll stop here, but because maybe you have some questions, but there's also something to be said about you know, the BDS in China. Well, fa fascinating guy, uh, really very interesting stuff. And I congratulate you for having uh, done so much research on this upcoming topic that's very much on the agenda. I'll have, I have one or two more questions. I, I, I'm gonna take this opportunity for everybody to, to invite folks to send in their questions and answers. We have a good uh, 30, 40 minutes at least. So, and some questions have already popped up. Uh, but uh, to keep you going on this thread, um, I'd like to actually inquire about how COVID uh, has at this stage basically, you know, thrown a huge wrench in the workings of global supply chains and, you know, the different kind of trade wars and, and the way things used to work. And uh, I assume a lot of Chinese uh, pre-assumptions were that business would be as usual, uh, whereas we see COVID having changed all that. Uh, how do you see the COVID uh, crisis, so to speak, for lack of a better word, or epidemic, uh, impacting world trade patterns, China's, China's role within that, and then their role specifically with the Middle East? Mm. Well, I mean, I, I guess there's, you know, bound up with that is sort of the wider sort of, you know, economic, you know, challenges that, that, that the Middle East is facing. That I mean, I think this is going to happen globally, every, everywhere is going to see sort of a contraction of the economy, you know, this year. Um, and then, of course, that, may, that means, you know, there's, there's fewer prospects for investment and, and, and commerce and, and trade, you know, next year. Um, but in terms of thinking about sort of, you know, the, in the immediate aftermath of, of coronavirus, what was China doing in relation to the Middle East? Because, you know, Iran was kind of the first point the first place where in the, re in the region where coronavirus started to become, you know, a problem. It then sort of shifted to, you know, other, other countries on the other side of the, of the Gulf, you know, sort of in the Arab, Arab Gulf states. So over the course of, over the course of uh, you know, the last six months, we've seen, you know, Iran, the Arab Gulf, and then the spread of coronavirus, you know, across, across the region. Now, how has China responded to that? Well, you know, it's looked at, it's one of the things that, you know, it's, it's, it's got, had a really good, you know, sort of counter, you know, counterpoint in the, in the form of the Americans, right? The Americans pretty much in denial, pretty much closing up shop. So on the flip, so whereas the Americans were doing that, you know, the Chinese sort of said, look, we are, you know, keen to help out. We want to sort of, you know, provide, you know, sort of medical assistance. You know, we want to provide, you know, tests. We want to provide, you know, doctors, nurses. You know, we want to provide equipment 
that, that, that the countries need because you're not getting it from anywhere else. And this was actually a really good sort of propaganda coup for them as well. So what you see from sort of late, from, from, from March is, you know, a number of different, um, you know, sort of diplomatic, you know, sort of a, a number of missions, you know, to different parts of the region, including into Palestine, um, by the Chinese providing all of this equipment. Um, there's also obviously, you know, an attempt to sort of try and ensure that the public opinion of China, you know, is a positive one as well, um, in, 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 as a result of this, this, this activity. Um, obviously, you know, Chinese, there's been a lot of sort of attention given to it in the media and, and but in terms of sort of the, the, the sheer numbers that the volumes involved, you know, the amounts, you know, it is still the case that I think, you know, Europe, like the Europeans have probably, you know, uh, provided more, uh, you know, in sort of sheer volume terms. But the Chinese have been very good at actually sort of, you know, being quick, first out of the blocks, responding to, responding to things. Uh, but what is also interesting as well is that it's been primarily, you know, at a bilateral level. You know, the Chinese relationship with the Middle East, as with most, as with pretty much the rest of the world, is government to government relationships, right? So it is not really government to society relationships, even though they talk a lot about it in their sort of position papers, like the Arab policy paper of 2016. Um, so what you find is that it's these, these partnerships, these relationships that the Chinese have, it's usually with, you know, other leaders, okay? Now, what was interesting about COVID-19 was, you know, that the Chinese, you know, did allow, um, you know, sort of, you know, did try and sort of bring in, um, you know, Chinese businesses, uh, tried, did try to sort of engage at a more sort of societal level. At least that was the rhetoric they were putting out. But I think, you know, a lot of it was still very much through sort of official channels. And so you had, for example, like, you know, Jack Ma Alibaba, you know, the Chinese firm, you know, sort of providing you know, assistance, you know, sort of as, you know, not just the Chinese state, but of course, these are firms that are close to the state as well. So, you know, it is not, you know, there wasn't sort of a desire to expand, you know, the number of po points of contact, but it's still primarily government to government. Gotcha. Uh, I'm, I'm going to steal one more question, but I want you to be brief on it because we yeah. do have a good set of questions there. You said you didn't want to really talk about One Belt, One Road, but I do feel that for the, for the purposes of our audiences, can you walk us through, but nothing more than that, what are the major Belt and Road points on the Middle East map for China? And that's, so thank you for that. That's a really good, that's a good question because, you know, one of the interesting things about Belt and Road is that it's, it's a very sort of broad vision. Um, the Chinese have not been very specific about, you know, where they expect it to go. There has never been an official map that says this is the route it's going to take. You know, the way the, way the Chinese see it is to say, you know, we have the resources, we have the capital, we have the skills, we have the labor, you know, we want to partner up with you. It's a collaborative process. So it's up to individual countries to con con contact us and for us to work this project out jointly, right? So there's, so, but that's because of this base, so that means that it's basically everything and nothing, right? It could be incredibly expansive. It could include any number of different countries. It could pass through any number of different routes, but, um, it's, and, but it's not entirely clear what, you know, what that means. So the countries that are, that are involved, you know, are also obviously trying to attract Chinese investment and interest. And so I think one of the interesting things I, I mentioned in, in my presentation was that, you know, there isn't a lot of Chinese investment and activity in places like Yemen, Syria, and Libya. But what you find is that, you know, Syria, especially as it's now moving into a post-conflict, post, in, into a reconstruction 
phase, you are finding the Syrian leadership very keen to sort of, you know, emphasize its relationship with the Chinese, to say that the Chinese are friends, that they want to encourage the Chinese investment into their country because they're not going to get it from the West, they're not going to get it from the Gulf, they're not going to get it from the Russians and the Iranians. What's interesting is that, you know, the Syrians play this up, but the Chinese have been pretty quiet about it. They've not said no, but neither are they necessarily said we're going to do it because, of course, there is risk, you know. You know, is, is, it, is, it, is it risky to invest in an, an environment like this, you know, where conflict hasn't completely you know, dampened down? And this approach, and this is actually not a, not a point that I've made, this is actually work of scholars like Mohammed al-Suderi from the King Fayyad University in Saudi Arabia and Andrea uh, Giseli in, in Fudan University in China. They've written about this in relation to Syria, but you can also apply this logic to other places like Iran. Right? because the Iranians want to present themselves as not a pariah because they've got the Chinese on their side. So it's, it's, it's in their interest to play up their relationship with the Chinese. And for the Chinese, it looks good for them, right? To have all these people saying, we want to work with you, just bolsters their world, their global image. Fantastic, guys. So I'm going to transition now to some of the questions. We've got some good questions here, 10 so far. Please, uh, I'm inviting anybody who's on the Zoominar to send in their questions now to the question and answer tab. We will not be looking at any other questions uh, on the Facebook page or otherwise. Uh, so we'll see how many of these we can hit. And uh, uh, so we have our first question here from Felipe Medina, who writes, thank you, Professor Guy. Can you tell us more details about China and the war in Yemen from 2015 to the present? Yeah. So the Chinese have very much taken the, taken the view that um, they, you know, they, they officially support the, the Hadi government because it's recognized by the UN. And so implicit in that is their support for, you know, or at least acceptance of the Saudi you know, intervention uh, in that country as well. I think it's also, you know, there you have, you know, the, despite the American sort of claims that the Houthis are a proxy of the, of the Iranians, that's not that, it's not that, it's not as clear as that. Certainly there is some assistance and sort of financial and military support, you know, by Iran to the Houthis, but the Houthis are very much their own, their own actor. So what you have in that respect is kind of like a stronger Saudi, you know, so stronger Saudi commitment in Yemen compared to the Iranian one, right? Whereas I think if you were to look at Syria, it's kind of flipped the other way around, right? Now, so what you find there is that, you know, the, the Chinese are pretty much back the, um, you know, the official government and so therefore implicitly the Saudi, Saudi position there. Um, that said, they do, of course, you know, maintain the rhetoric of, you know, dialogue is the answer. So they do support, you know, UN attempts to that end. Um, they also support the idea of non-intervention. That is a principle that they've that they, that they, of their foreign policy since the 1950s. Although, you know, what does non-intervention mean? Um, in the case of regional, act, regional parties like the Saudis, not much. But when it comes to sort of, you know, intervention by, you know, global powers like the Americans, yes, a, a hell of a lot. And if, and if I might just sort of, uh, you know, jump to, no, no I'll, I'll, leave, I'll leave it there because it may all come, come out later, so. Uh, thank you, Guy. We have a couple of questions here that kind of relate to China, US, Israel triangulation. Pedro Blanco asked something that maybe you might have already touched on about the extent to which China could play a major role in the Israel-Palestine conflict. Uh, could it rival the US there? What's your opinion about the conflicting participation of Chinese companies in Israel with US interests and security concerns? To follow up on that, you also have Arik Bashar, who asks, uh, we read a lot about US opposition to China's growing economic role in Israel. How worrying is that to Beijing? 
your comments there. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, just the, the, the point that was asked about, you know, China as a, as a, as a, as a mediator, as a potential player, you know, party to, to, to solve, resolving the conflict. I mean, I think I've addressed that. But the other thing I would also add is that, you know, the, the way that Oslo is structured means that, you know, the Americans are the, the third party mediator there. And I don't think in what we see is that the Israelis are very happy with that. The Palestinians have always talked about, you know, internationalizing the conflict and internationalizing, you know, sort of the conflict resolution to that. They would love to have the Chinese involved. They'd love to have a lot more people involved. But, you know, they're going to find that very hard because, you know, Israel and the Americans work so, you know, sort of hand in hand on that respect, in that respect. And the Americans are not going to give it up. The Israelis don't want them to give it up. So. For the Chinese, where is the incentive to, to get involved in that? And that, I think, brings me to, to, to the other point, which is that you know, China does a very good job, not just with Israel, but across the region, of you know, separating you know, its economic interests from its political interests. So you know, it has um, you know, built up this very you know, broad and very deep uh, relation, economic and commercial relationship with Israel you know, of, over the last 20 to 30 years. If you think about sort of its initial point of contact was, you know, sort of arm, an arms trade, it now encompasses all manner of activity from, you know, infrastructure, infrastructure at the high for national ports, as I mentioned, you know, through to, you know, uh, telecommunications, there was some sort of talk about, you know, that, that being, you know, under discussion. A number, what was interesting was a number of these contracts were sort of initially being brokered about five, you know, five six years ago. Um, and at, the, at that time, the Americans were not making a big song and dance. In the last year, they have. And so we've seen since 2019, the Americans becoming much more agitated about you know, the Chinese presence in Israel um, to the point where now America is starting to you know, put the screws on Israel and say, you need to make a choice. Um, this has meant that the, what the Chinese, what the Israelis have done is to introduce a new sort of foreign ownership assessment system, which is actually something that the Europeans are also doing here, by the way, um, in which, you know, any of these kind of attempts to sort of, you know, any of these bids, you know, will be reviewed for how much collaboration is there between the, the firm and the, gov and, and the government in China. Uh, of course, this is on, on contracts moving forward, so it doesn't affect things that have already been agreed. Um, but of course, you know, the Chinese, all, you've got to see from the Chinese side as well, that they understand that Israel is, you know, an ally of the United States. And they have never tried to challenge that. Um, in fact, actually, there is you know, a really interesting you know, case uh, about which took place about 20 years ago, which I think is I think quite instructive and people have forgotten, which is the Falcon controversy. So back in, in the late, you know, it, during the 1990s, actually during the 1980s and 1990s, China, Israel was selling much more high-tech equipment, military equipment to China. And the Americans were quite happy with this until the late 1990s when they sold you know, the Falcon, which is kind of anti-radar equipment. The Americans were worried that this could be used, you know, in, you know, again, around for their own uh, activities around Taiwan. So they basically said to the Chinese, you need to stop, sorry, they said to Israel, you need to, you know, you need to cut, stop this deal. And I think it was around $200 million or something at the time. Uh, eventually, the Israelis faced a choice. We either go ahead with this contract, which we've signed with the Chinese, or we pull it and you know get you know make america happy but china unhappy um they eventually did what the americans wanted they pulled the contract the chinese were not happy that cooled relations for a couple of years and there was a massive you know, compensation payout but it was just one wrinkle in the road and it didn't really you know 
upset the, the, the apple cart of, of, of Sino-Israeli relations, because it's, it's, it's just gone from strength to strength since then. I think the Chinese recognize that, you know, if the Americans really put the screws on Israel, that Israel will be forced to do these things. But that, that shouldn't mean that they, it cannot, they, the two can't have a partnership and a relationship. Well said, well said. That kind of to follow up there, there's an excellent question here from Jeff Halper who asks, what role does Israeli military involvement in China play, especially internally, as in surveillance technologies or suppression of the Uyghurs, etc.? Do you know anything about that? Um, only in the, in the broader sense. I mean, I think, you know, Jeff's, you know, done stellar work himself. I think, you know, he's, so, you know, his, his most recent book, which looks at a lot of this stuff. So, I mean, I, I would, I would, Certainly recommend you know people who are listening in that read Jeff's book. Um, in terms of, I mean, in I will only talk broadly in the sense that the Chinese are very, you know, or, or rather I should just say, sort of in the Middle East, you know, there's a lot of interest in in, in Chinese, you know, sort of Chinese technology. Um, there is this sort of overlap, as you, as you know, this this idea of sort of social credit that that's that's being you know where you can use surveillance equipment and technology for that. And, and there's a lot of interest in the in the Gulf on this, right? I think what we're seeing is kind of authoritarian regimes are particularly interested in, in, this, in, this, in this equipment and accessing it and, and, and acquiring this knowledge. In terms of sort of Israel and China, yes, what we're seeing is, you know, sort of, uh, there has been considerable Chinese investment into, into, uh, into, into Israeli startups. You know, some of them may well have military application, um, but it's actually quite difficult to, you know, to drill down and get, and get a lot of this data because, you know, a lot of these companies, as we know, you know, don't necessarily sort of advertise or publicize, you know, a great deal of what they're doing, particularly, you know, when it comes to sort of the, the, the military side of things. Um, but certainly there is this, there, there is some degree of overlap between the two. Yeah, yeah. It's a region filled with uh, concerns around uh, monitoring and surveillance. It's uh... Uh, anyway, uh, no comment there. We have another question here from uh, Mr. Roger Higginson, who asks you, do you see China's having a geostrategic interest in Iran in terms of seeking access to an Indian Ocean port on Iran's south coast? I think, so Mr. Higginson's talking about, I think the, you know, the, 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 the development of the port at Gwadar, um, which is uh, on the Pakistani side. Um, now there has been sort of a bit of sort of geo, sort of almost like a geopolitical race between the Indians and the Chinese on this, right? Because the Chinese have sort of been developing this connectivity uh, corridor with Pakistan, um, you know, over the over the last over the last decade or so, which would see sort of you know improvements in in infrastructure, you know, sort of roads, railways, and and the port at Wada, Whereas the Indians have been trying to do this on the other side, the uh, the Iranian side at the at the Chabahar port. Um, What's interesting is in the last couple of weeks, the Iranians seem to have grown tired of, of India, you know, sort of pulling out, you know, sort of not, not fully committing to this project, partly because of a fear of sanctions. And so they kind of sort of abandoned the Indians, which caused this a bit of a concern, you know, within Indian thinking. Um, and maybe it may well be that the Chinese are sort of invited to come in here and to, you know, to fill in the space. Um, Look, the, uh, the way that sort of the Chinese, the, the Chinese approach to, to Iran has been, you know, a relationship which is, you know, very pragmatic, right? It's been, you know, there, it's a relationship, they've had diplomatic relationship relations since the 1970s. It began under the Shah. It continued, you know, after the 1979 revolution. Um, 
you know, it has continued with sort of the, you know, China being sort of a major arm, or the major arms supplier to Iran during the Iran-Iraq war. It, you know, China did was 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 a key you know support you know, pr provider of of, of, of assistance to the Iran nuclear program during the early 1990s. But what I think is interesting is that in 1997, when the prospect of better relations with America was on the table, it abandoned those that 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 its assistance to the nuclear program with Iran. And even during the 2000s, you know, when sanctions were being debated and discussed. You know, at the United at the UN Security Council, the Chinese, you know, were, were quite happy to accept the sanctions regime because they don't want to see nuclear proliferation either. So what you've got to see is that this Sino-Iranian relationship is a very pragmatic one. The Iranians need the Chinese, but the Chi they don't. But the Chinese don't need the Iranians to the same degree that the Iranians that Iran does, right? So there is, and there is this awareness in Iran as well that the Chinese will only go so far. You know, the, the Iranians would love China to become an ally, but China does not do alliances. It does partnerships. And what is interesting um, is that it, it has a number of, you know, it has a hierarchy of partnerships um, of which the most, the, the top, the most substantive partnerships it has are what they call comprehensive strategic partnerships. And it has five of those in the Middle East, of which two are, one is with Saudi Arabia and the other one was with Iran. And it signed both of those within weeks of each other. You know, the two major rivals in the region it has managed to sort of put the both of them at the top of its priorities for the region. Okay, thank you. Uh, we, we have a follow-up question from Dr. Mandy Turner, who is our ex-director here at the Kenyan Institute. She asked Dr. Burton if he could elaborate on the impact of Chinese ownership over the new Haifa port. Uh, and I might add also the one in Ashdod, uh, mm. which I believe is a map, is an expansion deal. So mm. there's two ports mm. here. Yeah. We know, she continues by writing, we know it's annoyed the US and has been suggested uh, uh, that, sector, that Secretary of State uh, Pompeo's visit in May was about this issue in particular. How do you see this issue playing out? So, I mean, the, the reason why the Americans are so het up about Haifa is because it's also where the Sixth Fleet docks, right? And so they're incredibly concerned about, you know, sort of spying and surveillance, you know, Chinese spying and surveillance on the fleet, on the fleet there, which is why it's, it's prompted this, uh, you know, this, in a way, it's kind of, it's, it's, re, it's the, 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 the American concern here goes beyond commercial concern. It's, it goes to national security concerns, which also echoes what I was talking about, the Falcon controversy of 20 years ago. Um, so what you're, I don't know, you know, where we're, I think as, as things stand, and the last time I saw Haifa port, you know, it is still ready, it is getting ready for, you know, Chinese, further Chinese development. I think, you know, if the, if the Americans were really to push the Chinese, push Israel, you know, to pull out of that deal, you know, th there's going to be a major compensation to be paid, as well as finding, you know, an alternative partner. And, and that is one of the difficult things, you know, there, the, in terms of investors, you know, who else is prepared to step in and do that? Um, you know, when we look at, you know, there's, a, there's been, a, there's a, you know, there's a lot of competition going on around the region, you know, for, you know, investors in, in, in ports. And there's only a few countries and state, um, you know, state, state firms that are able to do that. Um, if you look to sort of the Horn of Africa, for example, you know, it's, you know, it's Dubai ports, it's the, you know, it's, it's UAE ports that are doing this. And of course that, without diplomatic relations between Israel and the UAE, that's not gonna happen. So, you know, this is, I think in terms of, you know, where, 
you know, Israel, the Israelis face, face a difficulty in terms of what, what to do if they are forced to uh, you know, ask the Chinese to withdraw from, from Haifa. Um, gotcha, gotcha. Well, I'm going to kind of uh, put together a bunch of other questions that are sort of have uh, points of intersection. Uh, given uh, this one coming from Jan van Roysen, uh, who basically asked a question given the Chinese position, it's would you agree that this basically makes the Palestinian position more difficult uh, for them to be able to achieve their rights, especially if what you, you know, uh, that they're, if they're taking a hedging position as, as you describe it. And if you'd like to comment further, he has a follow-up question as so what that might have, uh, what that might mean in terms of perhaps advice or, or ideas or implications on both the Palestinian leadership as well as the larger network of supporters around the Palestinian cause. Mm. What does China's entrance into the game mean for them? Well, so I, as I said, I think the you know the, chi the Chinese prior, you know, prior, primary concern in, when it comes to Israel and, and Palestine is not the conflict itself, but sort of diplomatic and, and commercial relations with both sides. Um, I mean, it does have. It's been you know what's been interesting is it's it, it does have a Middle East envoy, which has had for about since two thousand and two. Which is primarily symbolic. It does, you know, he does, you know, sort of personal meetings with with both sides. Um, but one of the, one of the one of his, one of the recent ones has actually published a paper talking about the idea of peaceful development, um, which sort of says, you know, why don't this seems to be sort of part of China's sort of drive to you know, solving conflict, which is to you know ensure that there is greater development in society, which will somehow kind of iron out any kind of grievances. Um, I mean, it's still, you know, a work in progress and it's very broad brush. It, what's odd about it as well is that it doesn't really sort of engage with, you know, sort of civil society in, in that respect. Because as I sort of mentioned a, a little while ago, a lot of China's relationships are primarily sort of, you know, based at the level of government. I mean, it will not talk to opposition movements and different groups uh, you know, for fear that this, you know, that this will sort of, you know, well, basically encourage other people to do the same, you know, when it comes to, when it comes to the Chinese, when it comes to Hong Kong, you know, Taiwan and, and, and Xinjiang. So the Chinese concern is to sort of still work, operate at the levels of leadership. Um, that's also made it very difficult for groups uh, like the BDS, right? Because, you know, the BDS is primarily sort of, you know, a grassroots movement. You know, it's, it, it aims to, you know, encourage, you know, the development of relationships, you know, across borders with other like-minded groups to lobby governments from, from outside, you know, whether in those countries or, you know, at home, you know, to act again, you know, to act on behalf of Palestinian rights. And the problem with that is that China's, you know, so whole setup is not designed, not geared for, you know, BDS activity. I mean, when I was doing work, and not, for, not so much for this book, but for the previous one, you know, I was interested in what does BDS do in terms of the BRICS countries. And it was very striking that, you know, BDS activity is much more manageable, much more tangible in places where you have democracy like Brazil, India, and South Africa than in the more authoritarian, you know, places like Russia and China. That said, BDS has also worked primarily, you know, in North America and Europe, which has historically had stronger you know, ties to Israel than say China, but I would say that if the BDS is you know, serious about, you know, it's going to have to engage with the fact that China is the second largest economy in the world, is going to is going to becoming increasingly important for you know in the Israeli economy. So how can BDS actually sort of use that as leverage? 
It's going to be challenging, though, because it's a different kind of you know, political setup. We're going to take one last question. That's from Muhammad Tawfi Ali, who uh, I'm going to try and synthesize. His, uh, he, he's concerned, it seems, with the issue of Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, and Yemen's civil wars or, or you know, consequences of the Arab uprisings, uh, particularly in the context of COVID. Uh, he asks, uh, do you see these as, as failing or failed states and that the, the COVID now might be a, something that would kill these popular uprisings. Do you have a view to that and what, where China stands in this equation? Uh, do you see them preferring, you know, sort of in some, they may, you talked earlier a little bit about not only their hedging, but also the risk that they have to maintain because obviously these are major popular uprisings that don't necessarily have clear winners in them, maybe some of them do now at this stage, but uh, also that might be a short-term bet. So could you talk about how, how China is actually going through that process of uh, calculating the risk it wants to take and at what stage of the game, perhaps? And, and, and that's, that's a really good question. And I think, you know, I think since you are, you're asking both a combination of what I think as well as, you know, what the Chinese think. And certainly for my, 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 my view is that the, these protests, you know, have very good, you know, political, you know, economic, social reasons for existing. And, you know, COVID's not going to, as we've seen, you know, people have come back on the streets, you know, they're not going to go away. And it's, it's a continuation of what's been going on over the last decade. They haven't just sprung out of nowhere, right? Um, the problem is, you know, for the Chinese that they have, you know, as I've said, they tend to work on this basis of sort of government to government relations. So, you know, they are, they're very much geared towards, you know, these relations of government to government are sort of also sort of, you know, underpinned by this idea of order and stability, right? So they're kind of, they're almost walking into the same trap that the Americans have done in the past, which is to, um, you know, prioritize regimes that will offer and secure stability and order, but, you know, at substantial social and political cost, right? These being authoritarian regimes. Um, this means that should those regimes, you know, fall or be challenged or compromised in any way, you know, China doesn't have the, you know, the, the wherewithal, doesn't have the contact to, you know, whoever might replace them. Also, because it doesn't have, you know, hasn't cultivated, you know, sort of, you know, other groups in, in society under the, under the, the auspices of its non-intervention policy. So this is, you know, uh, a problem for, for the Chinese in terms of, you know, they recognize that there are protests. They recognize that there are, you know, that there's, there's good reasons for this, but they also, and this is where I think, you know, the, the new paradigm of peaceful development, which they're sort of trying to present as a way to, you know, not just stand on the side, but to try and engage with, with, with conflict as it's taking place in the Middle East, is their way forward to this. It's still at a very early stage. And as I said, with peaceful development, it's not clear, you know, where, you know, who, who they're going to work, you know, how that's going to, pan out for wider society, because if their main partners are governments, right, as we're seeing in Syria today, um, you know, a number of, you know, it, it, seems, very, it seems very likely that the, the kind of reconstruction that's going to happen is going to benefit and privilege, you know, those who are close to Assad or loyalists, and it's going to disenfranchise, it's going to keep those that oppose him disenfranchised. And the danger is, of course, that that kind of, you know, sort of China becomes involved in that, that will only just exacerbate it. Um, so, you know, we're, we are, so there is, a, there is a plate, there is a need to develop 
you know, Chinese thinking on this, certainly in terms of practice. A lot of this is still at the conceptual level. And it's being talked about in a general way, but in terms of sort of actually, you know, in, ter uh, in terms of activities, actions on the ground, we're not really seeing that at this moment. Oh, sorry, one other last thing can I just say to Tafik, if there are still any outstanding questions, you know, um, I'm happy to, I, I'm, you know, I, if there's some way that you can sort of, you know, send them to me and I can sort of, you know, respond to them maybe on Twitter or something like that, um, you know, I'm happy to do that because I'm conscious that in responding, I'm, pay to, you know, taking, taking time away from questions. Well, that's what you're here for. So, uh, and you've been a very generous uh, uh, discussant today, or interviewee, I guess that's what you are. <laughs> and we thank you for that. Uh, indeed, it was a very fascinating, rich uh, set of uh, information and analysis that you provided for us today, uh, Dr. Burton. So we want to thank you for that. Uh, this, as I mentioned, was uh, uh, a book talk based on Dr. Burton's latest book, which is China and the Middle East Conflicts, that came out of Routledge uh, just uh, one week ago. And if I'm not mistaken, this is probably the first book launch that you've had. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. yeah, fantastic. That's a great honor for us to have. So check that out. You can pick a copy up at the Educational Bookshop in East Jerusalem if you're local. Support your local uh, bookshops if you, have the ch if you have the ability to. Uh, Dr. Burton also has another book on rising powers in the Arab-Israeli conflict, which uh, since 1947 that came out of Lexington Books in 2018, and you can pick up that book too uh, if interested. Um, we'd like to thank all of our audience members for coming out today, as well as our partner organization, the Educational Bookshop, as we said, in East Jerusalem. Uh, check out our website, cbrl.ac.uk. Uh, today's event was just one in a series of webinars that we've organized. I think coming up on August 18th, we have a fascinating book discussion on the roots of the Lebanese financial crisis, where we're going to interview King's College University's, uh, King's College London's Hisham Safiyuddin, who wrote a fantastic book, Banking on the State. As well as at the end of this month, we'll have something on Palestinian theater with uh, author Dr. Gabrielle Varghese. So check those events out on cbrl.ac.uk. You can also sign up to become a member. Also, please check out the Educational Bookshop's Facebook page. That's pretty straightforward. You can find them on Facebook. I'd like to thank everybody for attending today and most especially Dr. Uh, Guy Burton for his time and his generosity uh, today. Uh, we hope you tune in next time for future events and otherwise stay safe and have a good day. Thank you.